Welcome to the Reconstructing Healthcare podcast, a show where we discuss what's wrong with healthcare and talk with innovative companies disrupting the health insurance marketplace. Join us as we explore strategies to help employers lower healthcare costs and build a better health plan. Now here's your host, Michael Maneri. All right, hello, this is Michael Maneri, and I want to welcome everyone to the Reconstructing Healthcare podcast. Today, our guest is Sean Duffy from Omada Health. Sean, welcome to the show. Thank you, Michael. Happy to be on it. So here's the game plan. What we seek to do on this show is educate our audience on non-traditional methods to lower their healthcare costs and improve value for their employees. And so ultimately, our interest is helping those employers, CFOs, HR directors, and benefit managers who are ready and yearning for better results. Make sense? Makes sense. All right, cool. Just to get us started, going to read a brief bio about you and Omada so the audience has a little bit of context about who they're listening to, and then we'll jump into it. Sean Duffy is co-founder and CEO of Omada Health. He holds a BS in neuroscience from Columbia University and worked as an MBA candidate at Harvard and formerly worked for Google and IDEO. Omada's mission is to inspire and enable people everywhere to live free of chronic disease. They do this by building digital health programs that are evidence-based, performance-priced, and designed to delight their users. Their flagship program helps people at risk for obesity-related chronic disease, like diabetes and heart disease, transform their lives through meaningful lifestyle changes that lead to weight loss. Fast Company has honored Amada as one of the world's 50 most innovative companies, and the New York Times has called Amada a potential medical triumph, while Forbes has said it could be a blockbuster. All right, how's that for an intro? Great intro. All right. So, Sean, give us a little background just about yourself. Clearly, you didn't start out working in the healthcare industry. So, how did you go from Google and a design firm to launching a company in the healthcare health insurance space? Yeah, happy to share. And, and you, you know, you obviously teed up uh, the summary of my background in the intro. But short story, I've always been somewhat of a tech geek and a healthcare lover. My dad was an engineer. My mom was a nurse. Loved computers as a kid. You know, I think I probably wore sweatpants through junior year of high school. And you know, not the not the uh, the coolest kid on the block in, in early high school. And then um, you went off to college. And when I graduated, it was just a really cool time in Silicon Valley. It was two thousand six. Valley was booming. It was fascinating what was happening on the tech side. And at night, I was reading tech blogs and not studying uh, organic chemistry. So I, you know, I, just, I panicked. I, I didn't know what I was going to do. It just felt like my interests were just being pulled to tech, even though it felt like such a good way to give back to the world to be in healthcare. And I think when you're in your undergrad, you think the world's binary, right? It has to be one or the other. Looking for tech jobs just to try to scratch that itch and figure I'd soul search there and, and you know choose. Went to Google for a couple of years, realized that you might be able to combine. Back then, I had the ambition to build the, the Starbucks for primary care, just a very tech-forward primary care practice. So went off to medical school, enrolled in Harvard's MD, MBA, and then in a funny chain of events, they have a curricular requirement that you have to take an internship along the way. And just from my time in Silicon Valley, I had known some of the folks at IDEO and asked if I could satisfy that internship there, came out, and while there, was given the opportunity to spend a couple months exploring digital health spaces got the idea behind Omada and uh, just was really excited by it. It felt like the you know a unique map of what the world might need areas that I was passionate about. And I loved working with my co-founders. So um, I just kept asking med school for more time off and eventually they, they cut me dry. <laughs> oh, I like that. And so you were, you were forced into uh, entrepreneurship. Before it forced it. Exactly. Went back for that third year and the Dean, the Dean said, Nope. <laughs> <Pick>. <laughs> 
That's a, that's a great story. Okay, so as you know, I mean, we, we have a healthcare system that really consumes more and more of our disposable income. There's a recent Kaiser Family Foundation study that indicates about three in 10 adults report someone in their household has problems paying medical bills, often with, with real consequences. And by real consequences, you know, seven in 10 report, you know, cutting back, spending on food, clothing, and other basic household items. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, clearly we've got a problem here. So tell me in your words, you know, what do you believe is wrong with our healthcare system and why do you think costs continue to increase like they do? Uh, how long is this podcast? <laughs> 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 um, we have a unique system. I, you know, I think that the every every kind of you know healthcare structure has its own set of you know flaws, opportunities, challenges, etc. So I think you know, like you look across the globe at what others have done, and some people go, "Well, Singapore is perfect," but geez, you know that Scandinavian healthcare system is perfect because they've got all that health IT infrastructure. And the funny thing about America, which I think people don't realize, we, we kind of have them all. We have single payer; it's called Medicare. We kind of have that at the state level as well, Medicaid. We've got, you know, self-funded insurance with employers. We've got fully insured insurance. We have individual on the exchanges. When you're Medicare Advantage, you can also get or you medical for service, you can also get supplemental insurance on Medicare. So it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a grab bag and that makes things very complicated. It's funny, the more I think about one of the root causes of preventing a lot of the change that's needed in the healthcare system, weirdly enough, my belief is that one of the bigger contributors is the inability, thanks to the fragmentation of the payer market, for a provider to align their contracts. And the reason I say this is, let's say you're a hospital that wants to vastly redo how you do care, you know, take on value contracts, not be paid on fee for service, the works, right? Mm-hmm. It's very tough to do that unless all of your contracts are directionally similar because you can't change all of your operations unless your payer blend can broadly support it. So if you have like, you know, if you can somehow strike some contracts on the private side to get like, you know, 50% on value, but then you still have so much fee for service and, you know, you haven't done that and patients come in, it's too hard to re-engineer it. So I think it's been holding this back. I think, I think because CMS uh, continues to promote moving toward value and there's alternative payment models, et cetera, I think this is actually going to get better. It takes time in healthcare, but I'm more optimistic now about the future state of where we can go in healthcare than I was when I started Armada for sure. But that's, you know, that, that is one of the many contributors of the challenges in healthcare. Yeah, that's a, it's a good perspective. And, you know, I think you're one of the first people that's, uh, that's offered that, that perspective when I asked that question. So let's get to your company. What is the Omada Health product and service? And, uh, you know, tell us about specifically what problem you're trying to solve in the marketplace. The, 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 weirdly, the best way to think about Omada is almost like a digital hospital um, for early metabolic disease where... You're overweight to the point where you're seeing prediabetes, you're seeing heart disease risk factors uh, like, um, you know, hypertension, high cholesterol. Um, uh, we're a program that can help you as a participant make some lifestyle change done in a very behaviorally forward way that helps you lose weight. And that can actually in turn reduce your risk of progression through this chronic disease continuum. Um, and, the, you know, the, the vision with the model was, was a really kind of started with two principles. One is what does the evidence show that's even possible in this space? And there's actually so many trials that shows that this 
you know, very intensive behavioral program can work, but they'd all been done in person. When we started the company, there was zero evidence that anything could work digitally. And the challenge with a super high touch, multi-week program, you know, scalability, access, flexibility, it's just hard to, you know, hit the volumes that you need. And so Amato's mission was to figure out kind of what worked in that science and bring it to the digital era and innovate on that. And so the, you know, the Omada product, the way it works is um, it's quite high touch. It includes like a lot of different instruments and tools to help people improve their health. But first, as a participant, we mail you some hardware. It's got, you know, we've got a scale with a cell phone chip in it. So it just works out of box. We then match you into a small group of others like you. So you have peer support, pair those groups with a health coach. On a Sunday, we kick you off on a 16-week core curriculum. Whereas week by week, we're unlocking lessons and kind of guiding people through this journey with a health coach participating as a facilitator for the group and supporting you individually. It's got a lot of the key components that independently wouldn't work alone, but they're all tied together elegantly in the hope of doing both a high touch intervention, but making it very high tech and scalable. Got it. Okay. So we're, we're talking about a, you know, really a, a care management program here designed, you know, for, for those with chronic disease and illness. And I think specifically you said diabetes and uh, heart disease, right? Yeah. So the, what happens when you gain weight, um, it, usually you'll see three kind of clusters together. You'll see the diabetes continuum, which is pre and type two, right? It's that whole axis, your blood pressure and then lipid challenges. So hyper, you know, hyperclusteremia, um, uh, those cluster together. So those, those, you know, really folks where they're not in it, you know, we don't have a program for people that want to just like, you know, have an awesome beach body for their summer vacation. Like that's not <laughs> us. There's plenty of things. Ours is for folks where there's real clinical problems already emerging in their bodies and it's the right time to really take action and provide a high touch program. As far as the, the business case for why an employer should focus on this population, can you just share with our audience, you know, some of the statistics of this particular cohort in a population and what their costs would be versus those without? Diabetes alone, if you just look at the cost of that, it's like you know, 275 billion and growing, you know, inflating, you know, four or 5% a year. And then people with prediabetes tend to convert into type two, depending on a couple of factors, like what tests you use, ethnicity, et cetera, but tend to convert between like three and up to 8% a year. If you just look there, what's happening is people with prediabetes don't naturally go to their doctors and try to find out. It's not, it's asymptomatic. So there's like a ticking time bond, all these people, it's like a third of the adult population. Everyone's barreling toward this cliff of type two. And every single study shows that doing nothing results in people getting diabetes, you know, no surprise. So, you know, if you look at the economics of that, what happens when you get diabetes is it's coupled with protocol to try to keep you healthy. You know, you'll get on medicines, you'll have more visits, and you're less, you're less productive at work. And if you take that and sum up some of the other positive changes that we've seen in our data with people, how they just even utilize the healthcare system when they're in a prevention and health promotion program like ours, you get near-term economic returns. Especially as an employer, it's important to take action because you're uniquely in a place where you can kind of touch and activate folks who are otherwise not finding out that they have these risk factors. I want to say two things here. One, the cost is so severely different for a diabetic than someone who's not. We actually were with a client yesterday and looking at some of their data. Uh -huh. and the diabetic population on average, about $15,000 per year versus yes. the non-diabetic population, about $3,000 per year. Exactly. And so, you know, what you're talking about is actually identifying people before they get to that stage where they're, you know, type two diabetic. So you're looking at identifying the pre-diabetic population. Is that correct? That's kind of the, the, one of the primary ways we work. Now, guidelines have morphed to evolve supporting our sort of program for that early type two as well, because you can actually really slow progression. 
a diabetic at that's later stage, it's the figures are astronomical. You know, you'll see mean 20,000 a year. I mean, if it's really advanced, it just gets so incredibly expensive and so sad for the person's health. For sure. For sure. How many employees in a given population are, are typically at, at risk for diabetes or heart disease? The biggest correlators are age and you know, average BMI in your population. So, you know, as both of those increase, you tend to have higher rates. So you'd see, you know, in like a younger company um, with not a huge BMI challenge, you'd see like 20, 20 or so percent. You'll see up to 50, 50, even some, some 60% in folks with slightly older workforces and, and those who are more troubled with obesity. So, it, you know, it can be a large swath of, of any given population that's at that, at that risk moment. Okay. So that's, I mean, that's, we're really talking about a huge opportunity when you put it, when you, when you put it in terms like that. Oh, yeah. It's, 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 you know, it's an enormous opportunity. You know, it's always one of those two when you're an employer. The perspective I always like to share is the things that you're most suited to take action on relative to a provider. It's not going to be like, what's the best rheumatoid arthritis medicine or, you know, there, there's systems, there's medical policies, you know, all that's working to help evaluate that for you. But it's who's the biggest, you know, what's, what's the biggest population inside your workforce that you can take action on in a way that's, that population's actually malleable. You can actually do something with it. And if you weren't taking action, nobody else would be. And, and that tends to be that early risk population because they're, you know, maybe they're getting, they're going into their doctors once every three years for a physical or um, they're just, yeah. they're not, they're not uh, being identified. Yeah, for sure. You know, I guess the next logical question here is like, we're looking for, for pre-diabetics. And so how do you identify who would be eligible for the program? It's a trend in a lot of employer communities to do biometric screenings. And we always work to do everything we can to piggyback off of that data and really be presented right there when someone finds out that they might be at risk thanks to that biometric screening. So we have, we have a really neat partnership with Quest, which is the biggest provider of biometrics in the employer space. And we've coupled it. So it's really seamless for you know, an enterprise who wants to have us on the other side of the, the result. And the reason that that's important is awareness is not enough. Every control arm of every single clinical trial shows that when people find out they have prediabetes, they actually do want to do something, but nothing that, you know, it's just too hard alone. You won't, you know, you won't go out and make change and lose weight with that result. You need a lot of paratrooper, you know, support. The other way is if there aren't biometrics or there's big gaps in biometrics, there's actually a risk screener that the CDC has helped create that's validated against a big diabetes data set. And it's pretty good. It's not, you know, it's by no means perfect, but it's, um, it does a pretty good job. You know, in diagnostic terms, like the positive predictive value is about 75%, um, which okay. is not bad. Yeah. yeah now, and especially since there's the safety profile of an intervention like this is really, you know, it's quite good. So, you know, if someone comes in on a screener and it like, Turns out that maybe they were just below the level. It's not, you know, it's not a harmful thing. Got it. So uh, biometric screenings and through sort of a survey yeah. of some sort. And so once you have identified via the survey or the biometric screenings, who qualifies, uh-huh. right? What's next? I mean, are people automatically enrolled in the program? You know, you'll as a user on the way in, you go through a little screener, right? To make sure that it's a fit for you. And then from there, we just get you, we get you started and set up. So um, step one is getting your hardware. So you'll, you know, we, we mail you your welcome kit. You, you know, you're like, oh, great, expect your kit. And then you'll get an email saying your welcome kit's on the way, lands at your doorstep, you open it up. It's uh, the, the key piece in that is a scale with a cell phone chip. So mm-hmm. step in it, there's a beep. It says sent, the data's in the system. From there, we match you into a group of others based on location and age. We pair the groups with uh, one of our coaches, which is specially designed to 
uh, deliver this, especially train to deliver this sort of program. And then on a Sunday, we start you. So you'll, you know, you'll get an announcement that your group's about to start. And on Sunday, you can actually log in and start your lessons. And then week by week, we're unlocking lessons. And everybody in this group has this kind of shared weight loss percentage target. And you get to kind of go on this journey seeing others and that it's possible um, and, and with a lot of active support from your coach and all the tools and content and infrastructure. Got it. So you mentioned lessons. So it, it sounds like there's an, you know, the digital scale and then there's like an educational component mm-hmm. to this. So as part of the education or the curriculum, what are you really trying to, to teach people that maybe they're, they're not currently aware of? The first phase is about food, right? That's kind of the first month. Second, it switches a bit more to activity. And then third and fourth is more in psychology. So it's, you know, in that section is things like health is just healthy strategies for eating out, you know, how to forgive yourself when you slip, dealing with social cues, uh, how to talk to your friends about the fact that you have lifestyle goals. It's like, you know, it's a lot of the stuff that tends to really get in people's way. The food tends to be a, a pretty important bit. There was actually a wonderful New York Times piece that just came out two days ago with a study that one of our uh, nutritional advisors, Christopher Gardner, ran, showed that the approach that tends to be more sustainable from an eating standpoint, and this is the philosophy that, you know, these behavioral programs, of course, ours use, which is it's not aligning to a particular diet ideology, but it's trying to work to help people reform their relationships with food. You're trying to, okay, you're trying to say like, look, here's the sort of foods that, you know, you and I would both agree are healthy. Which of these do you like? All right, let's talk about how to introduce more of that into your diet. Like, you know, what what can we introduce more of that? Because what happens psychologically, you're not thinking, well, shoot, what am I not having? So you're not thinking, oh my gosh, I have to have like less of that mac and cheese I love. Or like, you're just thinking, well, how do we introduce more of this? And then it displaces other food. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and healthier food tends to have like higher nutrient density, lower caloric density, it leaves you more satisfied. In a weird way, it almost pushes the bad stuff out by painting a path of positive psychology. And that tends to be the best approach versus overly restrictive calorie by calorie counting. It's really hard for humans to do that in the long haul. Yeah, I, I, I think the whole notion of trying to count calories sounds like a huge pain. And <laughs> I think most people will get discouraged by that. Yeah, you can do it for a period of time. But the, um, the best is, in fact, our tracking is deliberately not calorie counting. Like it's, um, it's mindfulness tracking. It's like, look, you know, just describe what you ate or take a picture. Reflect mm-hmm. on if you feel like it was not healthy, somewhat or healthy. And any answer is fine. Mm-hmm. And then reflect on if you think you ate too little, too much or just right. And that little cadence of awareness can help you better understand your predispositions and your habits and behaviors. It sounds like, I mean, there really is sort of a, a wellness component to, to this service. I mean, focusing on nutrition, I mean, I would, I would guess there's a majority of the population has no idea how to eat you know, uh-huh. in a, sure. in a yeah. nutritious manner. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's true. The, um, there's not, it's not a, you'll, I mean, you'll see varying levels of nutritional fluency coming in and you know you don't need to become an expert but um you know there's a lot of like food myths like we have little games in the curriculum that try to like trick you there's one called i think it's called like don't buy the baloney um it's like it's like you know it's it like actually which you think is like you know considered healthier because you'll yeah. see like, people see like oh you have low-fat yogurt perfect and then you without thinking about it you look at the back and it's like 40 grams of sugar. <laughs> right, right. Well, I think the food industry has done a good job of, of tricking us into thinking certain things are healthy. So that sounds great. So you've gotten them in this educational curriculum. You've got them in a support network with other people that are going through the program you know, digitally. And I believe, did you mention they have access to a health coach as well? That's correct. Mm-hmm. So as people are going through the program, how do you measure progress? How do you measure the efficacy of the program? 
Well, the key, the key piece, I mean, in our clinical trials, we look at your metabolic health and, you know, our research participants are going to get their blood tested and, you know, all that. In the commercial program, the key biometric measure we set a target around is, is weight, but done in, done in the right way. There's, you know, there's, a, there's like, we've kind of gone into this already, but there's a lot of different ways that you can try to help people lose weight. Some, tend, you know, that tend to be more sustainable than others. And so it's, you are shooting for a certain percent weight loss goal over the course of the 16 weeks. Um, and then you see progress toward that goal. You see your other group members making progress toward that goal. And it's a very gentle step-by-step approach. So we really encourage people when they start to like, do not try to do everything at once. Like take it easy, just glide here. Like just follow kind of the, the week by week cadence, like be patient with yourself. Like don't like go in overly aggressively. Um, and, and, and you'll see, just bear with us. You'll see how this all adds up over the course of four months. Cool. So the, so the main, uh, the main metric is, is weight loss. Mm -hmm. Um, and do you have any results from your, your, uh, your book of business with, with your clients? Yeah, we we have, I mean, we have, um, nine, like nine peer reviewed publications, um, looking at our outcomes in different populations, some looking at economic Mm -hmm. outcomes, I mean, the works, um, uh, and, you know, those have even been sufficient to allow us to, you know, even progress being more of a, you know, proper healthcare entity here in that we, we got a CPT code issued by the AMA, you know, thanks to our clinical data and, and the need here. And then we have like 28 million weight readings, book of business of all the people going to the program. And, and we'll, what we'll see is it, the, the biggest contributor to success in our outcomes in the population tends to be age. Mm-hmm. And the, the hardest people for us are those like you know, those young, young, like, you know, 20, 25 year olds who are the young, the young invincibles, the invincibles, right? Those are yeah. the hardest. And, um, but, but we'll reliably get between three and upper sixes, um, mean, median percent, you know, weight loss at the end intention to treat. So we've been of course happy with our results and we actually charge on them. We're, you know, we're an out, we have an outcomes based pricing structure. So, you know, as a client, you can and should trust us that our program will work, but you don't even have to because we're not going to bill you unless it does. So let's, let's talk about the fee structure because I think your fee structure is unique. So describe that sort of uh, performance-based fee structure that you have. Sure. Yeah. So, so firstly, we've never charged a PEPM, you know, in our space. And for those line who are perhaps not familiar with uh, it, the most often people will come in and say, look, I'm just going to charge you a fixed fee per employee per month, you know, two bucks or something. Mm-hmm. And that allows access to whatever I'm offering. The challenge we felt with that was you are not perfectly aligned with your clients because the more utilization you get, the more your margins would be compressed as a business. Not good. It's not like the, you know, it's, it's not kind of a, a great way to, to do business with a program like ours. There are plenty of things that work with a program like ours where the unit of clinical impact is at the person level we've always felt you should charge for that unit of impact. Mm-hmm. And so the way, the way it works is um, more often than not, we'll be billing through your TPA or your health plan. And we have many, many contracts all set up to allow this. We'll get one of your employees in. Once they're in, they're matched, they're grouped, they're kicked off and they have a scale. That's when we bill an enrollment fee, which is a one-time right. fee that helps cover some of our working capital needs. Yep. And then we make our profits on the weight loss outcomes. So, the, you know, the more successful we're able to get you in the program, the more we build, but it's all through the, the claims infrastructure. So to me, that sounds like an aligned incentive, which is something that we, we talk about here on the podcast quite a bit. And conversely, we talk about misaligned incentives. So okay. that, that sounds like a positive one. You guys are getting paid for, for results. You'll bill an initial enrollment fee 
and then you'll you'll bill you know a dollar amount uh, based on the percentage of of weight loss per month. So the more results that you see within a given cohort mm. or population, the more money that you would make, which is you know aligned with the you know what the employer would want to see from a risk reduction standpoint. Exactly. Yeah, because the the more successful the person is in our program, the higher the risk reduction is, the higher the economic benefit. Um, so we're like you said, you know, we're, we're aligned from an incentive standpoint and it's neat. You know, we like it externally. It's neat because it's uh, in our space. There's, it's, you know, it's kind of a weirdly easy to put up a website and be like, Oh yeah, we do that too. So it's nice just from a differentiation standpoint. And then also culturally at Omada, I kind of love it because what happens is the product team is constantly like thinking, well, how do I improve here? And, and we can be creative because we can think, all right, well, we've got like Frank who's in the program. How might we invest a bit in Frank? to get Frank that one step further and recoup that investment based on our pricing model. Yeah. So you don't have to go to like, if you're improving the product, you can, you can kind of do it in quicker ways because you know, that the pricing model like already supports that. Your ultimate goal is to make it, you know, a positive impact, you know, for that individual. So, mm. you know, I, I think, uh, you know, it's a good way to, to design, you know, the structure. One of the things for a lot of the companies out there like yours who are, you know, their, their results, are based on engagement. So mm -hmm. the relative impact is really going to be a function of, of participation and engagement. Yep. So talk to us a little bit about, you know, what is the, what is the marketing strategy to, because if you, if you identify a thousand, you know, exactly. pre-diabetic folks within a given population, how many of those a thousand, a thousand individuals are you getting into the program and by what means or methods are you trying to market to them and get them engaged? Just yeah. So the, exactly. If you look at like overall population, so not accounting for even who's at risk, I think our, our mean is something like, you know, eight, eight, per, eight or so percent right now. If you look at the at risk, it's like 20, 30% of the at risk. And we're constantly giving good feedback on that. I mean, you know, there's a, one example, Lowe's is a customer, mm -hmm. not Bobby Ari, who just now retired, but you know, ran benefits there. Really innovative guy who tries a lot of cool solutions and mm -hmm. always shares that this is the most successful program to go viral in Lowe's benefits history. Yeah, and it's because um, it's Darwinian. We Because we never had a PEPM, we would be signing these 100,000 live contracts. And if we didn't have the capabilities to get anybody in, we, we couldn't exist as a business. We had to develop and invest in extremely robust enrollment capabilities. I mean, we, we actually will have like a whole enrollment team where we assign an enrollment marketing manager to an account. And their entire purpose for being is to figure out unique dynamics inside that employer and the unique things we can latch on to with our marketing automation infrastructure to make it successful in their book. And then a whole in-house creative agency to, to design like the creative for it. And it's very consumer forward marketing. It's not, um, you know, though I was in med school, it's like the, you know, you don't, you don't want to lead with, you know, someone saying, oh, you know, in 2002, the New England Journal of Medicine published that. It's like, yeah, you have to describe the program in a really neat way. It has to feel awesome. And so we push hard there and have invested really heavily in, in making that happen. So, I mean, you just mentioned, you know, 20 to 30% engagement rates which um, is pretty good if we're benchmarking it against a traditional care management program from, you know, an ASO carrier or an insured carrier. Yeah. Their, you know, participation rates are pretty putrid, you know, one to 2%. And, and by participation rates, I mean, I don't even know what that means really. You know, maybe, maybe they talk to somebody on the phone once. Mm -hmm. What do you think it is? And maybe it's just what you just mentioned that allows you guys to create, you know, exponentially better results than other care management companies out there. Well, I think it, it, it has to do with the, like, you have to want, people have to want to do something. And it's funny too, because it's like the, sometimes we'll get questions, oh, well, 
you know, it's the, you know, you got to find the motivated people. And, and what I always say is that that's malleable. Like you can, mm-hmm. you can help someone get excited about an offering and get them to try it. Right. So to think that like, there's a certain sort of person that will or will not try something is a little bit silly. You have to, you have to create a compelling experience that seems neat. Like when it, when you get an email on this, you have to be like, that's free. Like my employer is offering that to me. Like that seems really cool. Like this is the sort of thing I thought I'd have to pay for. And, and, and that works. There's no, there's no shortcut there. Like you can't, the, you know, the entire um, evolution of the consumer marketing industry in the last like hundred years um, is about showing the value of the product or service and creating like a sense of value, scarcity, urgency, like all the like classic tenants. And we in healthcare tend to like put new offerings as like the seventh bullet in like a one time a year benefits <laughs> newsletter. Like, Why did anybody sign up? <laughs> Right, because it was because it was buried in the benefit brochure on page twenty five. <laughs> yeah, and then like, who wants to like like cool? You have a new care management program. I it's funny. I mean, out of curiosity, I tried to like sign up for health coaching with the plan that I'm on, and I won't share the name of the carrier. But it was like I'm logging. I just I was curious, right? What did the experience look like? First of all, it took forever to even find it, and then the SSO was broken. Like I couldn't even do it. The whole like architecture was was broken. <laughs> and, and that's not like, it's not a want to do, right? And that's what you have to turn no. into. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So consumer marketing is key to the engagement. Oh, big, yeah, big time. For sure. Oftentimes in this program, we'll talk about return on investment. Do you guys have any you know, book of business, ROI statistics? We, we do, yeah. We have, so we have, we have two published markup models that show return inside of two years. Blue Cross Blue Shield of Louisiana did a propensity match cohort analysis on claims, and they actually saw... $1,300 savings in, in year one, um, which was kind of neat. It was thanks to, in large part, the ways that people were engaging with the health system in the sort of program that we have, because, you know, we try to encourage people like think about their whole health and make sure you're getting like a physical and like, you know, and, and then you're maybe at the last second because you just thought about your primary care doctor, you're not like using the ER as your PCP which sometimes people do. Like, I got the flu. What do I do? I go to the ER. And then we have a couple of other claims analyses looming that, you know, seem like they're in that same window. So it's, you know, it's, um, it, it's compelling, especially given that it has a, a value culturally too, where, yeah. you know, a lot of employees, they're not thinking about the healthcare economics of it. They're just thinking my HR organization cares about me. Like this is an yeah. employer that cares about me and my health. You know, I was just thinking, you know, I, I, I put you in the category of a care management company. And, and now that I'm just, I'm listening and thinking about our discussion, I almost wouldn't put you in that category. You know, I mean, you, you talk about wellness programs and actually I, I, I think most wellness programs are incredibly ineffective. Yeah, they don't I mean, really to, work. To, yeah, they don't work. So this almost seems more of like a wellness program, a, a true risk reduction, uh, population risk reduction program. Yeah, it's fine. We don't, it's like... We always, um, we're hard to categorize. One of our partners, Cigna, and, you know, invest from the company along with, you know, many of other partners too, who've invested in Mana. Um, we contract with their provider org and then we line on the billing code. And then when someone comes in, we file claims just like Stanford Hospital would. We're kind of like, like the way I tend to think of this is like a specialty hospital for early metabolic disease. But then our goals are to help people rethink their lifestyle, you know, make behaviorally forward changes that result in weight loss, um, which is the conceit behind a lot of the wellness efforts that haven't really like to, you know, delivered on that conceit, but yeah, we're kind of a funny, a funny thing. And then, and then we have the go to market needs of a therapeutics company and we have to publish clinical trials to get, get like into medical policies. And we have a market right. access team. That's like the same as a drug company. So, you know, like in, 
in our series B, I kind of coined this term digital therapeutics, which sometimes people call us that, um, which I think is, is fair. I mean, you know, we're, our goal is a therapeutic outcome in a person, but we're hard to, we're hard to categorize. And it's so funny. I love watching like industry analyst reports. They have the tables and they, they, they put us in and I'm like, if you compare nine of those, we're like in a different category in all nine. <laughs> like, <laughs> so let's talk about, you know, your company and who is Omada a good fit for and who is it not a good fit for? Is there any, you know, um, employer size or, or limitations to who could work with Omada? Smaller employers, we have a little bit more of a turnkey approach or we really prefer to leverage, and this is good for them and us, leverage on some of our health plan relationships. You know, I mean, we go to, if we go to account, we're like, oh, well, beautiful. Your TPAs are Cigna and Blue Cross Blue Shield of Minnesota, you know, and a little bit of health partners. We're like fabulous. We're like, in, we're essentially in network with all of those. So there's no contracting you need to do. Here's some assets to communicate to your employees. We will support it. So that's what we do in the smaller. So the, in terms of what we usually have, like a field representative engage and, you know, fly out to meet benefits leaders, you name it, it's above 3000. So that's, that's size. Um, we tend to like populations that are traditionally more hard to reach. I mean, some of our earliest customers, it's like the state of Louisiana, right? Um, the, you know, we're doing a lot of cool work with like, like truck, the trucker community right now of all things. Really? That's, yeah, that's we, fascinating. Yeah, we do manufacturing. I mean, it's not um, easy to use technologically. So on purpose, because you know that diabetes correlates with age and SES. That's right. Um, that's right. Yeah. Di- so, diabetes, diabetes is yeah. Uh, industry agnostic. Industry agnostic. So the, well, who's not a good client? Typically younger, younger populations, less obesity. They'll probably still have a subset that are at risk, but they may want to focus on other things first. Yep. Yep. Gosh, what, what are some obstacles you've encountered to an employer saying yes to implementing your service? Um, well, the, the biggest is, you know, it's funny that people, the, the receptivity tends to be quite positive. It's, you know, we go in and we're like, look, here's what we do. It's a unique cultural you know, benefit. Employees are going to love it. The economics work. The outcomes are good. We're charging on outcomes. Um, I would say the biggest barriers we'll historically find are more in the category of implementation. It's these, and understandably, it's like these, if you're a benefits org, you tend to not be richly staffed. And it takes a huge effort to bring anything through procurement. There's not that many benefits organizations that are like over the moon to do direct contracts. And they're, you know, and they're thinking, well, shoot, like how many of these can I even do? Like, and that's led to this whole like platform concept. And that's always existed. I mean, that's existed when we founded the company. It's just evolved. But the, um, but that's the biggest barrier. So what, what we've, and we've known and felt that and empathized with that. So we've just put extraordinary energy to getting these health plan and partnership relationships set up. You know, we can go in and say, well, let's, let's just learn about your ecosystem here. Who are your TPAs? Who are your partners? Mm-hmm. And they'll say like, oh, well, you know, Tower is my consultant. Quest is my metrics provider. I use Anthem, I use Kaiser, I use a little bit of Cigna and some Blue Cross Blue Shield of Illinois. And we'll say, great news because we literally have contracts with all those entities. You don't have to do anything to get it started. And that helps a ton. And you've really worked to remove some of those barriers <clears throat> by being able to bill as a provider <clears throat> and just develop, you know, relationships with, you know, the various TPAs and carriers in the marketplace. Exactly. And that makes it way easier to implement, you know, as an HR leader, it's night and day different. What are you most excited about in the business right now? Are there any improvements or enhancements uh, to the Amata product that uh, are in the works for the future? Oh, there's so many. It's so cool. I mean, we just did a big product review and I'm just like, it left me smiling. There's a, because what's happened is data is your currency for improvement in this world. And mm-hmm. we've amassed the biggest data set of behavioral-based program in history, right? So, you know, 28 million weight readings, you know, 
hundreds and hundreds of millions of other relevant data points. And we're constantly running like little mini controlled experiments inside our product to see if these little tiny tunes make, make an impact. There are like 50 of these going, right? It's amazing. I mean, we're leveling up in all these cool ways on personalization, on how we address, you know, your risk factors, on like all these fun things. And what, what we always talk about is Nirvana for us is like Grandma Rhoda signs up and has this like strange sensation that she has trouble articulating where she's like, you know, it's weird. This program like feels like it was meant for me and I can't extra- describe why. And then Frank, who's, you know, 27 and lives in you know, Arizona, has the same feeling. And we're getting there. And it's so cool to see the teams progress that work. Love that. So, you know, being able to, you know, multi-generational, you know, <laughs> workforce out there and, and reach everybody where they're at. Yeah. And just, and just personalized so that it feels like it's like the right, it's just like just that thing you needed. I think what I find refreshing about what she just mentioned is the drive to innovate and consistently, you know, try to figure out how do we do it better. And I think for, you know, in healthcare, that drive to innovate and always do it better hasn't always been there. It's true, and yeah. So the, especially the with, has, has it's, been set up to provide that. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I think it just it, look a lot of our problems in healthcare. I think are you know begin with misaligned incentives, and mm-hmm. the more that we work to you know as brokers and consultants and employers work yeah. to align our relationships and build relationships with companies that have aligned incentives with what our results you know mm-hmm. we want them to look like as a payer. I, I think the better the results are going to be for everybody. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the hope. And again, um, it's, a, it's a really, I feel you know, weird, I feel a weird sense of, um, how to describe, it's almost like a honor. And like, I think it's a unique window. I think this is like, you know, I think decades from now, we'll look back on healthcare and be like, you know, that crazy window from like 2005 to, you know, to, you know 2020 was like massive, massive change. I mean, healthcare is a painful place to build any business because of the complexity and, you know, you really have to empathize with the system, but it's, it's a really unique moment. For sure. For sure. So Sean, if there was one question that I should have asked you, but I didn't, what would it be? You know, you didn't ask about other behavioral areas and the power, you know, of digital that we see there. And, okay. and the, tell me about, tell me about yeah, that. The commentary that I always share is you really, there's not going to be digital for everything. You know, there are some areas where it's, does a vaccine need like a digital wrapper around it? Like, no. So I, you know, the, um, what I always articulate is you act, you, you just got to, and this, this would include anything Amada might consider building in the future. You have to start with the evidence base. Like don't fall in love with the technology without deeply understanding, you know, a solution. Like it may be better to tell a person, oh, you have trouble remembering your medicines, like put them in your sock drawer. <laughs> then like, I'm going to create this like crazy digital experience with like Bluetooth capped meds and like a scanner that, you know, <laughs> so there's always this balance that I always love to encourage in the market of like, when like make, make sure that you're not falling in love with the tech, you're falling in love with the problem and the tech has to be an elegant and massively differentiated means to solving that problem for it to be a fit to change the healthcare system. Because I think we have seen in digital health a lot of like falling in love with the tech without actually deeply understanding how that lands in someone's life. Yes, absolutely. It, ne- it needs to be able to you know, solve the problem and it also needs to be easy for mm-hmm. the consumer. You know, if it's not easy and if it's not intuitive, then it's not going to work. Not going to work. Exactly. Not going to work. How can people interested in the Amada Health product learn more and get more information? Yeah, for sure. Just go to amadahealth.com. Awesome. Sean, this has been great. On behalf of our listeners and myself, I want to thank you for taking time out of your day to join us. It's been a great discussion and I, I hope our listeners have gotten some value out of it and 
and you know, are interested in the model health. Sure. I think Michael, honor to be on. Awesome. And to our listeners, we hope you enjoyed this episode of Reconstructing Healthcare. Um, with that, we'll sign off wherever you're at. We hope you have a great day and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Reconstructing Healthcare. If you liked what you heard here, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. If you're interested in continuing the conversation, please visit us at www.reconstructinghealthcare.com where you can access the show notes for this episode and links to Amada's website and contact information. Lastly, we welcome your feedback on the content and interviews we're bringing to you on the show. Please leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher and let us know what you think. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time on the Reconstructing Healthcare Podcast.